Chapter Three of Short Stories for Colored People, Both Old and Young, by Silas X. Floyd. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Thanksgiving at Piney Grove. The people of Piney Grove settlement, both white and black, had been free for nearly a generation. The whites had been freed from the curse of being slaveholders, and the blacks had been freed from the curse of being held in bondage. But never in the history of this little town, in the very heart of the so-called Black Belt of Georgia, had the people known anything about the proper observance of Thanksgiving Day until 1809. And in that year the revolution was brought about by a young colored woman named Grace Wilkins. Grace Wilkins was the only daughter of Solomon and Amanda Wilkins. Solomon and his wife were farmers, plain, simple, ordinary country folk. Amanda was literally her husband's helpmeet. She went along with him every morning to the field, and in season chopped as much wood, picked as much cotton, hoed as much corn, pulled as much fodder, and plowed as much as her husband did. Up to her fourteenth year Grace had been reared on a farm, and had learned to do all the things any farmer's child has to do, such as milking cows, feeding hogs and chickens, hoeing cotton and corn, picking cotton, pulling fodder, and the like. In her fourteenth year, acting upon the advice of an uneducated colored preacher, her parents sent Grace away from home to attend one of the great normal and industrial institutes for the training of black boys and girls of the South. At first her mother and father were filled with forebodings. It was the first time they had ever allowed their daughter to be away from them, and they missed her so much and longed for her so constantly that they thought they had made a mistake in sending her off to boarding school. Ignorant and superstitious neighbors, though they knew as little about such matters as did Solomon and Amanda, were loud in saying that Sol and Mandy would live to regret the step they had taken in sending Grace away from home. The only rays of sunshine that came in to brighten these periods of mental unrest and gloom on the part of Mr. and Mrs. Wilkins were found in the letters which they received regularly from their daughter. Grace invariably informed her parents, whenever she wrote, that she was well and doing well. Thus reassured from time to time, Solomon and Amanda managed somehow to undergo the terrible strain of having their daughter absent from them for eight months. But meantime they were firmly of the opinion that, once they got their hands on her again, they would never allow Grace to return to school. With glad and thankful hearts, Mr. and Mrs. Wilkins joyously embraced their daughter when she came home at the close of her first year in school. With keen and genuine interest, they listened to her wonderful accounts of the great school and of the great man at the head of it. Grace dressed differently and talked differently, and her mother said, speaking one day in confidence to her husband shortly after Grace's return, "'Dat gal's show got a new walk on her.' Grace Wilkins brought back a toothbrush with her from school. That was something which she had never had before. She used that toothbrush every morning and night. That was something that she had never done before. She was now careful to keep her hair well combed every day. That was something that she had been accustomed to do on Sundays only, or on special occasions. She washed her face two or three times a day now, as her mother and father noticed. Before she went to school, she had been in the habit of giving her face, as the old people say, 
a lick and a promise, early each morning. Besides, Grace kept the house cleaner than she had kept it before. She brought home with her a brand new Bible which she read regularly at home and always carried to church and Sunday school. She also had a songbook called Jubilee Songs and Plantation Melodies, and it gladdened the hearts of the good old folks at home to hear their daughter sing from a book some of the very songs that they had sung all their lifetime and which were so dear to them. All these things and others made a deep and abiding impression upon Solomon and his wife, and finding that withal their daughter was just as loving and kind as she had been before, and that she was just as industrious and faithful as formerly, Mr. and Mrs. Wilkins were not long in deciding that their daughter should go back to that school another year, and that they would work hard and stint themselves in order that they might keep her there until she had finished the normal course. So back to school Grace Wilkins went, that year, and the next, and the next. It was the proudest day in Solomon's and Amanda's lives when they sat in the magnificent chapel of the school and heard their daughter read her graduation essay on The Gospel of Service. Glad tears welled up in their eyes when they heard the principal call their daughter's name and then saw Grace step up to receive her certificate of graduation. Coming back to Piney Grove to live, Miss Gracie, everybody called her that after graduation, established a little school which she called the Piney Grove Academy. It was the first public school for colored children ever opened within the corporate limits of the little village. Before that the schools were district schools or county schools, which were taught about in different places for only three or four months in the year, mainly during the summer. Miss Gracie began her school the first day of October, by special arrangement, she used the first three months for the public term allowed by the state, and supplemented that with a five-year term, for which the pupils were required to pay fifty cents each per month. The plan worked well, the parents joining in heartily in the movement, and Piney Grove Academy soon became the model for the surrounding counties. Among other things, Miss Gracie had learned at school what was the import of our National Thanksgiving Day. At the opening of the second year of the Piney Grove Academy, she decided that she would inaugurate an annual Thanksgiving service. Accordingly, on the opening day of the second year, Miss Gracie informed the pupils of her plan, and told them that she would begin the very next day to prepare a suitable program for the exercises. Afterwards, Miss Gracie secured the cooperation of the village pastor, the same man who had been instrumental in having her parents send her away to school. Through him she was permitted to talk to the people at the church two or three times about the proposed celebration. She was careful to tell them that the Thanksgiving festival was meant especially to be a home festival in addition to being a time for people to come together in their accustomed places of worship to thank God for the blessings of the year. She urged them, therefore, as far as they were able, without going to unnecessary expense, to have family dinners and bring together at one time and in one place as many members of the family as possible. She explained to them how this might be done successfully and economically, and with pleasure and profit for all concerned. She also urged them to be planning beforehand so that nothing might prevent their attending church Thanksgiving Day morning. She was going to hold the exercises in the church, 
because her little school was not large enough to furnish an assembly hall for the people who would be likely to be present on thanksgiving day nearly everybody in town went to the exercises many white people attended including the county school commissioner and the school trustees it was the first thanksgiving service that any of them had ever witnessed the program was made up for the most part of choice selections from negro authors composers orators and so forth a selection from frederick douglas on patriotism was declaimed one from booker t washington's atlanta exposition speech was also delivered paul lawrence dunbar's poem entitled signs of the times a thanksgiving poem was read by one of the pupils and also the party another of dunbar's pieces was rendered the negro national anthem words by james w johnson and music by his brother rosamond johnson was sung by a chorus of fifty voices at the opening of the service the president's thanksgiving proclamation was read and appropriate remarks were made by miss wilkins the closing remarks were made by the reverend john jones the village pastor the remarks of mr jones were in the congratulatory mood he was naturally proud of miss gracie's achievements because he had had something to do with putting her on the road to an education he spoke of the teacher as the leaven that was leavening the whole lump and the applause which followed the statement showed plainly the high esteem in which the teacher was held by all the people everyone enjoyed the service none of the villagers had ever seen anything like it before after singing america all of them went away happy many of them in obedience to miss gracie's previous counsel going home to eat for the first time well knowing what they were doing a thanksgiving dinner at the home of miss wilkins there was an excellent spread of possum potatoes rice chicken pickles macaroni bread a precious thanksgiving turkey and the inevitable mincemeat pie besides miss gracie there sat at the table that day her parents mr and mrs solomon wilkins john and joseph wilkins brothers of solomon who had come from a distance mary andrews a sister of mrs wilkins who also came from a distance grandma wilkins grandma and grandpa andrews the reverend john jones his wife his daughter and his only son jasper jones jasper had gone to a school at t one year after gracie went and of course was one year later in finishing the course there on this thanksgiving day nevertheless he had been out of school long enough to have successfully established himself in the business of poultry raising and dairying just before the dinner party was dismissed the reverend mr jones arose and said there is another little ceremony you all's invited to witness before you go out and see the baseball game i am authorized by these credentials which i hold in my hands to unite the holy bonds of matrimony miss grace wilkins and mr jasper jones if there is no objection these two persons will please stand up and i'll tie the knot of course there were no objections the knot was tied and when the villagers learned of the occurrence not long afterwards they had additional reasons for believing that they were right when they voted that piney grove had never seen the like of such a thanksgiving day and that miss gracie wilkins was one of the best women in all the world the loud girl
I do not know of a more sorrowful spectacle than that of a girl who is loud in her dress, loud in her manners, and loud in her speech. It is a great mistake for a girl to suppose that this loudness will be mistaken by her friends and acquaintances for smartness. The desire to be regarded as bright and witty has led many a girl into the folly of being loud in her manners. She often cherishes the illusion that the attention such manners attract is combined with admiration, when the truth is that those who witness her strange conduct are simply wondering how it is possible for her to throw to the winds that charm of all girlhood, modesty. One afternoon, not long ago, I saw a group of girls of the loud type. They came into the streetcar in which I was sitting. They all wore boys' hats. One wore a vivid red jacket with brass buttons, and another had on a brass belt. A third one had on a most conspicuous plaid skirt. This third one had a box of bonbons, and when the three were seated she opened the box and offered it to her companions, saying as she did so, in a voice loud enough and shrill enough to be heard in every part of the car, "'It's my treat. Have some, chums.' Upon this invitation, one of the girls dived down into the box like a hungry bear, and held up a piece of the candy in triumph, and then dashed it into her mouth with a great guffaw. "'Oh, Mame,' said one of the girls, "'if you ain't just horrid to go and take the very piece I wanted.' Mame, laughed and taking the candy from her mouth, offered it to the other girl, saying as she did so, "'Well, here it is, Lulu.' Lulu struck the candy from Mame's hand, and it flew across the aisle into the lap of a lady sitting opposite the girls. This set all three of the girls to giggling and tittering, and they seemed in danger of convulsions when the owner of the box of candy let it fall and a part of the candy rolled out on the floor. The conductor came forward and picked up the box and candy and handed them to the owner. She giggled out her thanks, and Lulu said, why didn't you give him a gumdrop for his trouble? This seemed to impress the other girls as a most brilliant witticism, and they fell to tittering violently over it. Presently a gentleman came in and stumbled slightly over the feet of one of the girls thrust out into the aisle. I beg your pardon, said the gentleman, as he lifted his hat, whereupon the three girls grinned and giggled and giggled and giggled immoderately, and one of them said, Roxy, you had better ride out on the platform, where there is more room for your feet. Roxy then struck Lulu for making this speech. Lulu pretended to be much offended and flung herself over to the other side of the car, where she made a grimace at the other girls. The conduct of these girls during the half hour that they were on the car was such as caused every father and mother who saw them to regard them with pity. The loud girl, my dear readers, is always an object of pity. She should be a sorry object for her own contemplation. An old writer has said, You know little what you have done when you have first broken the bounds of modesty. You have set open the door of your fancy to the devil, so that he can represent the same sinful pleasure to you anew. Now, the loud girl may be entirely innocent of any actual wrongdoing, but she is regarded with dislike distrust, and even disdain, by the better class of people. She acquires a reputation for rudeness and coarseness, 
and the people of refinement will not associate with her. Her character suffers, no matter how innocent she may be of any intention of doing wrong. Delicacy, modesty, is a certain sign of sweetness, purity, and gentleness of character, just as indelicacy is the certain sign of a lack of these beautiful traits. THE ROWDY BOY You can tell him wherever you see him. There are certain marks or appearances which he carries about with him, and which are never absent. For one thing, you will find him with a cigarette stuck in his mouth, and a cigarette is one of the deadliest poisons in the world for boy or man. He wears his hat on the side or cocked back on his head. Frequently he stuffs both hands in his trousers' pockets. He doesn't attend school regularly. Sometimes he starts for school and ends at the bathing pond or the baseball park. He is late at Sunday school, if he goes at all, and he stands round on the outside at church while the service is going on inside. He steals rides on trains and on trolley cars, and on passing vehicles of all descriptions. He is saucy and impudent to older people, and is always ready and willing to quarrel or fight with his mates. He is what the boys call a bully. The loud girl and the rowdy boy are two things of which we have seen enough in this world. They are things. They are hardly worth the dignity of being called human beings. I saw one of these rowdy boys in his own home not a great while ago. His mother said to him, Johnny, you must always take off your hat whenever you come into the house. Good gracious alive, he said. I can't do anything right. What is the use of grabbing off your hat every time you come into your own house? His mother looked sad, but said nothing. Presently she discovered that her little boy had brought some mud into the house on his shoes. In her sweetest tone she said, Johnny, you must go to the door and wipe your feet now. See how you are tracking up the floor there? Well, said the rowdy boy with a snarl, can't the old floor be scoured? "'You must think this old house is gold. "'Now I am a preacher, boys, and being a preacher, "'of course I am what is called a man of peace. "'But I tell you that that was one time "'I came pretty near wishing I wasn't a preacher, "'so that I might have given that boy what he deserved. "'I was sorry, for the time being, that he wasn't my son. "'No manly little boy will ever talk to his mother in such a way.' I suppose that boy thought it made him appear to be a very important personage, but he was very much mistaken. Don't be rowdy, boys. Don't be rough. Don't be rude. You were made for better things. End of chapter 3